Well, on March 22, 1983, sorry, 1933, the German government turned an old gunpowder factory into the very first concentration camp. Over the next 12 years, this camp would process over 200,000 prisoners, and it would oversee the deaths of well over 30,000 people. Why? Why'd they put them there? Why'd they make them prisoners? Why'd they kill them? Well, any number of reasons. It's almost unhelpful to ask why. Some of it was because of their ethnicity, some of it was because of their behavior, some of it was because of their politics. Many reasons, many unreasons. Nevertheless, these prisoners lived in a state of constant fear. They were treated brutally, they were hung from trees, they were made to stand at attention for hour upon hour upon hour. They were hung from trees, they were hung from poles, they were experimented on, they were frozen to death, they were placed in scalding water, they were made to do heinous acts with their bodies. They were cremated, they were gassed, they were raped, they were made to carry the dead for miles before themselves being shot, they were marched to death. This is what we now know as the Dachau concentration camp. Now the Dachau concentration camp helps us see what's sometimes hard to see. And that is the nature of evil and the very live nature of evil. It helps us see that evil is a spiritual force that seeks to destroy God's good, true, and beautiful creation, especially people who are made in God's image. Evil is set against people. It doesn't matter what you put in front of each person as a qualifier. Evil is just set against human life. And it's a real power in human history. And sometimes it takes a concentration camp like Dachau for us to really see that it's actually at work in the world. And it hasn't gone away. Dachau... 70 years ago was still in operation. That is not a long time. And to this day, people made in God, God's image are still under attack. There are Christians that are beheaded in Egypt in 2015. There are college students systematically shot in Kenya in April of 2015. There are schoolgirls kidnapped in Nigeria, held hostage in 2015. Even now, who knows what they're subject to? Behind Boko Haram, behind the Islamic State, behind human trafficking rings, and behind every organized force of evil is an evil one who works within human history to oppose God and destroy what God has made. The Dachau concentration camp helps us see this. But just a few miles away from the concentration camp was the sleepy, quiet German village of Dachau. In this village, people quietly lived their lives as the war raged, trying to get by. Shopkeepers, schoolchildren, moms and dads, librarians, businessmen, even a priest named Father Frederick. Historians note that the little village of Dachau was 90% Christian. 
They were a bunch of nice people who, as far as we can tell, didn't want any trouble. So surely, there was a, a very clear line between the concentration camp of Dachau and the village of Dachau. One was very clearly evil. One was very clearly peaceful. Right? Let's start with the priest. I was particularly troubled to learn that Father Frederick took part in leading Christian worship in the concentration camp for the SS guards. And he had written ingratiating letters which were found by historians. Ingratiating letters to these officers. Thanking them for their patronage. Showing pride in his association with the big shots. Not just the priest, though. The businessmen, the shopkeepers, the pub owners. They all did brisk business with the camp nearby. All these patrons... All the necessary logistics to keep a, a camp running that ran 200,000 people in it in 12 years. You need a village. You need businessmen. Not just, you know, to keep a separation, but to, you know, provide a service that people are asking for. Participate in the free market. Then there were the young men of Bacau. Maybe school-aged children in 1933 when the concentration camp was opened, but eventually old enough to be recruited. Yes, against their will. Many by force, no doubt. Many by coercion, no doubt. And many by social pressure, no doubt. But they chose to live. And they chose to play a role in systematic violence. What about all the nice people what about all the, the, the God-fearing, peaceful, nice people who saw the inmates in chains working in the village, being paraded through? All these emaciated faces, they knew something was wrong, and they didn't say anything. They didn't say a word. The village of Dachau helps us see something else about evil. It doesn't just need the bad guys to get the job done. Evil needs a whole lot of nice people to keep their mouths shut and cooperate. Evil, the evil one, the devil himself, doesn't just seek out the destruction and twisting and mangling of all that's good. The evil one needs to recruit massive amounts of people to live a life of apathy, collusion, comfort, and passive silence. It needs both. The evil one needs both to destroy what's good. What would I have done were I in Father Frederick's position? I tremble to ask that question. If I had to choose between leading a service for the guards or being one of their terrified prisoners... What would you have done if given the choice between blowing a whistle on the operations and sending your entire camp, entire family to the camp, your grandparents, or just keeping a low profile and kind of waiting it out? What would you have done if given the choice between booming business that you'll never see after the war is over and, on the other hand, poverty and perhaps starvation, perhaps imprisonment? 
As much as we love to think that evil and its impact is out there, separate, and only for the bad guys, we have to recognize that we have a capacity within us to perpetuate it and keep a smile on our face, to participate in it and be a nice Midwestern person to let it all happen so that we can be comfortable. My friends, we need a solution that is bigger than niceness. We don't need a shelter and a shield from the evil out there, although protection is good, but that's not ultimately what we need. We need a deliverer who will deal with the evil in here on its deepest level. We're going to look tonight at a story that finally unmasks evil in all of its complexity. Evil seeks to be hidden, and in this story, it is unmasked. And we will see an exposure of all of the cooperation between the bad guys and the good guys. And hope will be offered to every single one. Not just the good guys, but the bad guys too. We will see tonight a way of escape from the whip of the evil one that seeks to imprison us all in his campaign to undo what is good, true, and beautiful. We need this deliverance. We need this way out. And a way is made. Turn with me to Mark 15. I'm going to look tonight at five ways that evil hides itself. And what happens in response. Five ways that evil hides itself. Number one, evil hides itself in a noble cause. Evil hides itself in a noble cause. Verse 15, 1, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. I want you to imagine being one of them. One of the bad guys, as we see it from our perspective. See it from their perspective. They're the responsible ones in Jerusalem. They're keeping the apparatus of the temple going. They're keeping the apparatus of worship as it's been done for thousands of years going. And they're finally able to do it in the Holy Land. Yes, under Roman rule, but it's happening. And here comes along this figure who's messing everything up, causing a stir, causing a ruckus. It's undoing of every bit of order that they're seeking so hard to maintain. And so from their perspective, they have a noble cause. And they need to shut Jesus down. And maybe, you know what, maybe they have to cross a few lines. But you know what, maybe that's what the responsible adults in the room do, right? Kind of break a few laws, break a few bones for the greater good. Evil hides itself in a noble cause. Number two, though, evil hides itself in self-protective behavior. And we have Pilate. They hand him over to Pilate, and Pilate doesn't appear to hate Jesus, He's more likely to be kind of annoyed by his subjects that are bringing Jesus to him. Chief priests and scribes answer to him. And they dare come and boss him around. 
He's trying to find a way out so that nothing can kind of stick to him, nothing can kind of be pinned to him. And so Pilate brings Jesus to the crowds and says, well, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Is that what you want? Because it would be perfect. They could say yes, and Pilate would go, see, the crowds want this, it's legal, and I don't want any kind of uproar, and so, sorry, I know you guys wanted to have him crucified, but he's escaping, the crowd's letting him go. Pilate wants to cover his butt. And how tempting that is. How tempting it is to self-protect and kind of throw someone under the bus. Let someone else take the heat. Let someone else have the meeting with the boss. Just kind of move out of the way. Because why would he do elsewise? He's got a position to maintain. He's got a lot of other things on his plate, including self-preservation. So evil hides itself in self-protective behavior. Number three, evil hides itself in a self-righteous mob. Evil hides itself in a crowd that considers itself to be on the right side of history, to see things the right way, the righteous way. An angry crowd that wants blood, and they must be satisfied. Look with me in verses 11 and 14. The chief priest stirred up the crowd, and crowds can be stirred up. In the words of Soren Kierkegaard, the larger the crowd, the smaller the truth. Simply because a crowd is stirred up and angry about something doesn't mean they're right. But crowds have a tremendous capacity to be self-righteous and to be condemning and shaming. And they hold nothing back. Look with me later on as Jesus is being crucified, verses 29 and 30. All those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. You see what they're saying? Well, you know what? You were on the wrong side of this issue. We saw the issue rightly, and you're suffering, and eat it. We're going to shut you down, Jesus. You get what you deserve. We're going to Twitter shame you. And you're going to be crucified. And in the process, we're going to kick you while you're down. Crowds have a tremendous capacity to do this, and every single one of us here has, a tremendous, uh, has the capacity to participate in self-righteous, shaming behavior so we can prove our own worth and our own rightness to ourselves, to each other, and to the authorities that are stirring us up. So evil, evil hides itself in a noble cause, self-protective behavior, a self-righteous mob, Fourth, evil hides itself in just following orders. Just doing what you're told. I didn't, make, I didn't make the decisions. Someone else was deciding all the things. I'm just one of the workers. I'm just carrying out what they're paying me to do. Verse 16, the soldiers led him away. What else could they do? What were the soldiers going to do? At least from their perspective. This is what they get hired. This food gets put on the table because you lead Jesus away. And um, they call together the whole battalion. The battalion obeys. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. Just having some fun. Just kind of being creative with the work that they're supposed to do. I mean, imagine being them. Someone else made the call. Pilot's involved. I, I, I can't do anything. 
Just following orders. The housing crisis of 2008 was full of this type of self-justifying behavior. Bankers, loan officers, realtors, inspectors, just following orders, not paying attention. It's not my job. Finally, evil hides itself in nice people that stay off the radar. We would look in vain in the first part of Mark 15 to look for Peter, James, and John and the rest of the disciples, the male ones, that is, because they're off the radar. They've fled. They've gotten out of there, out of Dodge. They've run away. You know, they've disassociated with this whole drama. Eh, people are suffering. There's a crucifixion involved. There's, there's a trial. Let's just kind of wait it out. Let's not get involved. We live in a world with suffering people. In 2015, people are getting crushed right now by evil. Crushed. They're orphans, they're widows, they're homeless. They're people who are, who are suffering because of their faith. These are the people Jesus hangs out with. These are the people Jesus died for. These are the people Jesus loved. These are the people in whom Jesus makes himself known to the world. And it is so tempting for us to just be nice people who stay off their radar, who don't get involved, who don't get our hands dirty, People who don't give up comfort because it's like so easy not to. It's so easy to just go, I, I'll take the comfort. You just give me peace. I won't make a stink. You let me stay comfortable. That's the exchange we're in danger of making in 2015 in Chicago, Illinois, on the north side. Evil hides itself across the board. It seeks destruction. It seeks to remain hidden. And it needs good guys, and it needs bad guys, and we need to be delivered. We need to be delivered. Do you know that? Do you know that in all kinds of ways, evil has woven itself into our world and given us every excuse not to see it? Satan is real. The devil is real, and he's like Pharaoh. He wants to make us slaves to a project we can't escape from. And then eventually, when he's ready, he wants to crush us. That's his goal. That's his aim. And if we stay apathetic, and if we stay benign, we're lost. If we don't see the deliverance and don't see our need for it, we're lost. We're in chains. Whether we're religious whether we're irreligious, whether we consider ourselves a good guy, whether we consider ourselves a bad guy. Where is Jesus in all of this evil? Where is Jesus in all of this evil? He's making a way, friends, out of all this mess. He's being crushed by evil to deliver us from evil once and for all. A way for the bad guys to get out, a way for the good guys to get out. He doesn't stay off the radar. 
He doesn't pass the buck. He doesn't self-protect. He opens up his arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone, good guys and bad guys, might come within the reach of his saving embrace. He takes our corruption. He takes our status-seeking. He takes our greed. He takes our blindness. He takes our divisions. He takes our unbelief and our apathy and self-preservation and everything we've talked about this Lent. And he stretches out his arms of love on the hardwood of the cross and he takes it all into himself and accepts it and the darkness that comes with it. Verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. I don't know if any of you have been in complete darkness where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Have any of you been in complete and utter darkness? It's actually hard to get into utter darkness these days. But if you're in utter darkness, you realize how disorienting it is, how undoing it is. It feels after a while like chaos is going to overcome you psychologically, sociologically. You can't thrive. Civilizations can't thrive when there's darkness. Darkness as Jesus opens up his arms of love and receives the chaos of evil. Darkness covers the land like a black hole, swallows him up. But this is the darkness from God. Throughout scripture, darkness is used as a metaphor for God's judgment. God looks at the evil and he exposes it, ironically, with the darkness. Just like you can't see a glow-in-the-dark toy, which has now re-entered my life now that I'm a parent. You can't see a glow-in-the-dark toy unless you turn the lights off. The Lord is turning the lights off with his son stretched out in love. And evil is finally exposed. But something else is exposed to, something else is done to, and we need to see it. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Under the under God's absence, under God's judgment. And then something happens. He dies. He breathes his last in verse 37. And then in verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. A way was made. The curtain was an extremely thick separation between sinful humanity and holy God. And only the chief priest, once a year, with special regulations and a rope around his ankle, could go in on behalf of all of the people. Like Moses stretching out his arms and seeing the Red Sea, a way of escape opened up. Jesus stretches out his arms of love, and the way to God's deliverance is opened up. And anyone, good guy or bad guy, can pass through. Anyone, passive or active in evil, can pass through. Anyone who's complicit in any way, in any form of evil, can pass through. The centurion, who historians tell us that centurions in the Roman Empire had to kill their way to that position. They were not appointed. They were enlisted. And they got to the top with brutality. He was a hardened man. Perhaps he looked at the situation as, oh, I'm just doing my job. Perhaps he looked at the situation of, hey, I really like to kill people. It doesn't matter. He looks up at Jesus and sees the way he dies and understands a way has been made. And he says, truly, this man was the son of God. <laughs> I'm not following Pharaoh anymore. I found a new deliverer. I found a new son. And I will follow him. 
I will follow him into the presence of God. I will follow him into forgiveness. I will follow him into healing. I will follow him out of shame. I will follow him into the promised land where I will live forever in the presence of a holy God. I will exchange all the blood. I will exchange all the passivity. I will exchange what is on me, the judgment on me, because it's no longer on me. I saw him take it, and I'm going to pass through the way that's been made, and I'm going to get out, and I'm going to get saved. That's what the centurion saw, and that's what we need to see too. Whether you're a religious person who's really nice, whether you're an irreligious person and you don't care, we have all been complicit in the way of evil. We have used people. We have exploited people in ways passive and active. We have used ourselves. We have acted in some ways against ourselves. In some cases, taking a very knife to our own flesh to find a way to freedom. A way has been opened in the broken body of Christ. The curtain has been torn and there's a way out. Tonight we will have an opportunity to confess those sins that weigh on us that we've tried to make do through our niceness which we now have an opportunity to make do through confession of sin to Jesus who has borne the penalty. There is no shame at the cross for the centurion or for me or for Father Frederick or for you. There is no shame. There is only a beautiful exchange freely given to every man, woman, and child who comes to the cross. Perhaps you do not know Jesus. Perhaps you're seeking I want to invite you to pray with a prayer minister and, and actually make that great exchange in the presence of someone who can lead you through that. In fact, you could be baptized on Sunday if you're interested, if you've never been baptized and you're confessing faith in Christ for the first time. Or perhaps you are walking with Jesus and you've been made aware tonight of something that needs to be confessed, a sin against you, a sin by you. Or perhaps you don't even know. It's just sin. You're just aware of it. You need to talk about it. You need to be prayed for. Come and pray at the cross. Come and pray with the prayer minister. We'll have instructions on that later. We have a new Moses, friends. And he did the job better than the old Moses. When we realize that the problems in the world run through the very center of the human heart. We cry out like we've never cried out before for deliverance. And the new Moses stretched out his arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of his saving embrace. And he will deliver us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.